Our reading this morning is from Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 to 22. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. This is the word of the Lord. As many of you know, last week, this week, and next week, we're focusing on missions around here. And this year, we're focusing on the alien, those in poverty, and we're focusing on those in prison. Uh, so this week, I've been asked to talk about those dealing with poverty. And one thing I want to clarify before I really say much anything is that Poverty has lots of ways, lots of angles you can look at to decide what is poverty. Um, I'm really today going to talk specific, more specifically about material poverty, the lack of finances and things, and, and oppression, the lack of sometimes power to be able to accomplish the things in life that you need. Uh, so those are the two things I'm going to look at, but there's lots of poverty. We will sometimes look at people in material poverty and think, well, we're, we're the wealthy, they're the ones in need. Well, there's lots of needs, Right? Sometimes those who are in material poverty are actually rich in ways that we are not. So there's lots of ways to be rich, lots of ways to be poor. But again, today, I'm really going to look primarily at material poverty. First, I just want to hit you with a few statistics. I want to overwhelm you with these. But about 767 million people in the world today live in extreme poverty. That's, about a, that's living on less than $1.90 a day, which works out to a little less than $700 a year. 2.1 billion people today live on less than $3.10 per day. Um, and then that works out to around $1,100 a year, a little more than that. At least 17 million children suffer from severe, acute undernutrition around the world. It's the direct cause of death for about 1 million children every year. Every day, 1,000 children under age 5 die from illnesses like diarrhea, dysentery, and cholera caused by contaminated drinking water and inadequate sanitation. You know, the good news is that things are actually getting better in regards to poverty around the world. There's been real improvement. Uh, there's been real movement in the last decade in alleviating poverty. A lot of that has happened in areas that used to be some of the most poor, in China and in India and in Indonesia. And they think a lot of that has to do with simply the fact that there has been some increase in income in those countries, and that has contributed to uh, improvement in areas of poverty. But... But don't miss the fact there is still great poverty in those countries. But about 50% of what's called extreme poverty today exists in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so it's a place, again, where a lot of this poverty still exists just as it always has. In the United States, the federal poverty threshold for a family of four is $24,600. That's this year. In 2015, 21% of children in the U.S. were living in in families with incomes below that threshold. And that number actually surprised me. Most of these I've heard before. But that surprised me that 21% of children in the United States in 2015 were living in homes that were below the federal poverty threshold. 
Um, a lot of kids living in homes that are struggling financially. So even material poverty, there's lots of different ways to look at it. It's not just the inability to buy clothes or food or put a roof over your head. There are a lot of other things that often come with it. One organization I saw describe poverty this way. It's called Five Talents, a group that works to alleviate poverty. They described it this way. Poverty is an unmet need and an unfulfilled longing. Poverty is a lack of food, shelter, and everything good. Poverty is being sick and unable to see a doctor. Poverty is never having an opportunity to go to school. Poverty means not knowing how to read and write. Poverty is clothes that don't fit. Poverty is standing on the outside looking in. Poverty is dirty water you must drink. Poverty is a man without a job and a family without a home. Poverty is a long walk without shoes. Poverty is illness without treatment. Poverty is pain in the stomach. Poverty is vulnerability to every scheme, every lie, and every cheat. Poverty is an empty refrigerator. Poverty is no refrigerator at all, and no stove, and no electricity. Poverty is only one toilet for a hundred neighbors. Poverty is a thief in the night. Poverty is a drunk father. Poverty is a child lost to preventable disease. Poverty is a mother weeping. Poverty is injustice without appeal. Poverty is cruel. Poverty is stress. Poverty is shame. Poverty is famine. Poverty is war. Poverty is pain. Poverty is life often without life. Poverty marginalizes. Poverty suffocates. Poverty kills. It is an issue that Scripture addresses often. Scripture talks quite a bit about our responsibility to care for those who are in need, who are poor, who are oppressed, uh, those who are powerless in our society and vulnerable. Often Scripture talks about it. Today I want to look at just one of those passages, Deuteronomy 24, and what it has to say about it. The book of Deuteronomy is the book of these laws for the nation of Israel. And there were laws that were to guide them. They were to guide them how they were to live in making their moral decisions. It was to guide how they were to govern, them, govern themselves. And it was also to guide how they were to worship. So we have all these laws, and some of them covering very specific things about really every area of their life, how they were to live. In fact, Martin Luther said about the book of Deuteronomy, there is nothing in the whole range of life that is not arranged here most wisely and properly. It's a book that just told them, this is what your life is to look like as people who are the people of God, who are going to be a light to all the other nations, this is what you're to look like as a society and how you're to live. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 24, really just focuses in on the specific area of restraining exploitation and greed in relation to those who are more vulnerable in their society. So here are some areas that they were told to guard against, to be careful about as a society. One was predatory lending. Uh, They had certain laws that told them about how they were to lend to others in need. Now, in the nation of Israel, lending money wasn't really a way to make money because you look back in Deuteronomy 23 and we're told that Israelites were not allowed to charge interest when loaning money to other Israelites. They couldn't do that. You look at some other passages like back in Leviticus 22 and Exodus 22 and Leviticus 25, you'll see that lending was generally not just because people wanted to expand a business or get a nicer home or the kind of things that we might borrow money for. Lending in that society was generally given because someone was in desperate need. That's why they would borrow money. Often it was a crop that had failed or some problem like that. Often it was, you know, this person who was the one who was caring for the home would get ill. Something where there was a crisis, an emergency, and they needed to borrow money simply to survive. 
And they're simply being told, we don't charge interest because we don't want to take advantage of someone in that situation. We don't want to profit off of their hardship. And so they're, they're told that you have to be careful in how you lend to them. Don't charge them interest is one of the things. Now, they were allowed to take something as security for collateral to make sure that they would eventually get repaid. But if you look back, so I, I didn't have you read all of Deuteronomy 24 because I didn't want you all to stand up that long. Uh, but I want to look really through the whole chapter at some different places. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to pull it out and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And I want to look back at verse 6. So here are one of those very specific laws about how they were to lend money, about the collateral they could take. It says, Do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as security for a debt, because that would be taking a person's livelihood as security. So their millstones were families would have them. There were large ones a community might have, but families would often have these smaller millstones, and it's how they would ground their grain, that out of which they would make their bread each day. So if you took their millstone, they couldn't make their bread. It was difficult for them to eat. So he's saying, you can take collateral, but don't take something they depend upon in that way. Again, you don't want to increase their burden. The reason you're lending to them is to help them. Don't make it harder for them. You look on later, uh, down a little bit further in verses 12 and 13, and you see the same principle at work again. It says, if the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. So a common thing that they would take as security is they would take someone's cloak. Well, in that culture, a cloak was something that was kind of a dual-purpose garment. During the day, it was a garment they would wear. At night, it was their blanket. And so they're just simply saying to them, you can take a cloak. And a matter of fact, a cloak was probably pretty wise collateral. And the reason was because most people only owned one, especially the poor. And so if they give you your cloak as security on a loan, you know they can't go around borrowing from 20 different people. You know, if, if that's the security, then they only get to do that once. You know that they're probably not getting themselves in so deep they can't ever get out of it. And he says then, but at night, you've got to give them that cloak back every single night because that would be too much of a hardship. They freeze to death if you don't give them back their cloak at night. So again, there's this concern about you can lend, but you need to lend in a way that considers the people you're lending to, that helps them come out of that hole, not puts them deeper into it, right? Today, we still have a lot of lending practices, even in our society, that, that really kind of help people dig a hole they can never get out of, right? There are a lot of lending practices that do that. There are things like payday loans and title loans. There are, you know, you'll find businesses that advertise if you have no credit or poor credit, we'll lend to you. And a lot of times, there are exorbitant uh, interest rates and things. Now, again, I understand a commercial business is there to make money, and if they're loaning money, to someone that's a high risk, they expect a little more reward. But many times, that is not a little more reward. Many times, it's just exorbitant uh, interest that's being charged. And again, without really thinking about the situation of the person who's being loaned to. Find it rent-to-own businesses, a lot of these things. Sometimes things where it's not really thought being given to the person's situation. It's just simply a way to profit and to make money. In the nation of Israel, they were told not to do that. That was not the kind of society they were to be. They were to actually be concerned about those who were in difficult situations. One of the ways in the world that was kind of seen uh, several years ago is, boy, it was going to be the solution to poverty. It was going to alleviate poverty. It was microfinance, and many of you have heard about it. It's been around for years now. Microfinance was, again, a system that's come up with that was going to help people in poverty 
to be able to borrow enough money sometimes in crisis, but oftentimes to start little businesses that they could then make a living out of and become self-sustaining because no one's going to loan to them. So they figured out a way that a bank could actually make money loaning to people in these situations. Small villages around the world, poor communities, they could do this. So people could have their money, be held accountable in some way, and be able to, again, improve their life situation. And it really was, it was a great solution. And it also came with some um, ways that they were going to help them learn to save, be able to save, not really learn to save. And that's an interesting thing. You think about things we don't deal with. So if you wanted to save money in some communities, how do you do that? So years ago, for instance, I traveled to Ghana with a group from here. And the village that we were at was a lot of little small mud huts all close to each other. And people in that community, they sleep in those huts, but they're never in them all day. They're out together all day long as a community, doing things together, living life outside together. And at night, you go in and sleep. So if you came into some money somehow, and you wanted to save that money to improve yourself down the road, how would you save that money then? One, banks really aren't available. There's nobody's going to take your money. And in a lot of countries, uh, actually, if, they, if you open a savings account, you have to pay them to do it. They don't give you interest. You actually pay them. So you'd lose some of that money that you have. But a lot of times, there's simply not even a place to go do that at. So what do you do with your money? Maybe you dig a hole and put it in. You bury it. Everybody in that community knows you have money. You live life together. It's out loud and open. Everybody knows you have that money, and you depend on that community for your survival. These are relatives and friends that without them, you don't make it. So if they know you have that money and then they come to you needing money, what do you do? Sorry, I'm saving for the future. You depend upon those people. Very difficult to say, ever save money. Something we just think, oh, Take for granted. Of course you can do that. Many parts of the world, that's a difficult thing to do. Can't borrow money, can't save money. It's hard to move ahead financially. So microfinance was kind of built to try and solve that problem. But if you kind of paid attention to it over the years, uh, people eventually found out you could actually make money through microfinance. And so what happened there is what happens in everything. Corruption came in sometimes. There were scandals, some of those things. So microfinance has had some of the same problems that anybody in the world, any or large organization has. I think it's accomplished actually a lot of good, but corruption still came in. Greed still snuck in there because they lost sight of what it was for, many of them. It's not for helping, it was for greed, for making, using them as an opportunity to advance myself. Another thing they were guarded against was just simply disrespect of those in difficult situations, those in poverty or who were more vulnerable. Look in verses 10 and 11. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. So again, it's they need money, they need to borrow money from you. Well, they're borrowing money from me, then I should have control over them, right? I didn't ask them to borrow money from me. If they're going to want money from me, then I should have the right to ask whatever I want. And what the laws in Israel said is no. That's not true. They didn't lose all their rights just because they're in need or just because they're borrowing from you. They still have rights to privacy, still rights over the property that they do own. You don't get to just take over their life. You have a, a right to expect your loan to be repaid, to take collateral, but you don't get to take over. You still have to treat them as people who are people created in the image of God, people deserving of dignity. 
You don't get to set that aside just because they depend on you in some way. And again, today I think we often fall in that trap of, of judging people quickly because they're in situation of need, assuming quickly why they're there. Uh, I think most of us, if we, most of you I'm sure like me have never really experienced poverty. I'm sure some here have, but most haven't. I've never experienced real poverty. I truly do not understand what it's like. Uh, I've had times where I may have struggled to pay a bill or two. I never worried that I wasn't going to be able to eat or feed my family or get clean water or find medical care for my kids. I never worried about those things. I've never known real poverty. Uh, And it's hard for me to understand. So it's easy from the outside to look at people and just decide what their situation is. Because I've not experienced it. I don't know it. And so often what we hear is that from the outside looking at that, our judgment is usually that somehow people did something to deserve it. Somehow it was bad choices, it was laziness, it was something that caused the situation they're in. But boy, if we look more closely, I think we might occasionally find that. But if we look more closely, I think we'd actually find that that is not the common story. If we look more closely, I think we would find a lot of different reasons and answers for the, for the struggles that people are in that would make us go, by the grace of God, there go I. But by the grace of God, there go I. So, disrespect. They were told to treat people with respect. They were told to guard against exploitive employment practices to make sure that when they employed people, they treated them properly. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 24. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. So the day workers, day laborers, then, just as often as true today, uh, were really some of the most vulnerable employees in society. In, in the nation of Israel, even to be a slave made you less vulnerable than to be a day laborer. Because as a slave, there was some kind of permanent employment kind of attached to it. You're, they, they had some reason to invest in you because they wanted you to keep being a worker for them. There was some reason to give you some incentives to work well and move ahead because they want they knew they were going to have to keep dealing with you in the long term. For the day laborer, I just need your work for today uh, or for very short term. I don't care about you. I don't care what happens to you. I don't care about your future. All I need you for is right now. So it was easy to take advantage of them. And one of the ways that they'd commonly be taken advantage of, they would be hired, they work a day's work, don't pay them. What can they do about it? They have no power. It's not a thing they can do. Let them go. Or even if you do tell them you're going to pay them, decide you're going to. I can tell you, I'm not going to pay you today. These were generally the people who were in the most poverty and most difficult situations in their society. When they worked a day, they needed that money that day to feed their family for that day. They needed it now. Instead, I could just hold that money. And then, you know, you'll need to come back tomorrow. And maybe tomorrow you'll do a job you wouldn't have agreed to today. But now you need that money and some more money, right? Uh, Maybe I can get you to work for less than I got you to work for today because I got this money to dangle in front of you and hold over you. It gives me some power over the other. So again, the day worker was a person who's saying, no, when they work, you pay them at the end of every day. That's a law. That's a requirement for the people of Israel. Today, we still have day laborers in this world. They're still a very vulnerable group of employees uh, in many parts of the world. But there are other ways that employees are taken advantage of. Sometimes because they're in desperate situations, they're simply hired for pay that no one else would work for. They're put in inhumane working situations. They're forced to do work that just simply 
none of us would ever do because they're desperate. And, and employers know they can get away with it. Even if they make enough profit to pay them better and to provide for them better, they don't because they don't have to. They can keep them there working without doing it. So it's one of the ways we still see it today. Another way it's very common today is people, companies in some parts of the world will go into rural areas. They will offer people jobs. They will transport them back to where their companies are. Or they'll even go into other countries and offer jobs and transport people to where the job is. And then once they're there, the deal changes a little bit. Once they're there, the pay may be different. Um, we may keep your passport so you can't leave the country. Once you're there, uh, okay, we'll pay you that pay, but we didn't mention the fact that we're taking your housing out and your food out and your uniform out. And by the time you're done, you really don't have any money. So you really never get to send money back home. You never have a way to get out of here. You're really uh, technically a slave. That's what you are. We have, we have gone and got you, brought you, and we pay you money, but we don't really. We own you now. Those kind of things still go on around the world. Those who are in desperate need are often exploited. A lack of justice. They were to guard against um, showing a lack of justice to those who are in need. Look in verse 17 that you heard read earlier. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. So you'll, you'll hear this again and again through Scripture about the foreigner and about the fatherless, the orphan, and about the widow. They were the most vulnerable people in their society by far. They are still the most vulnerable people in many parts of the world today. And saying with those people, make sure as a society, as God's people, you are to give them equal rights, to treat them equally in the justice system as you would anybody else. That situation shouldn't make any difference when it comes to handing out justice. I've told many of you, you know, years ago, I worked in a jail for a couple of years as a counselor. And that was kind of my exposure to the justice system. And again, this was years ago, but as I read things, it seems some of the same issues are still true today. Uh, when I worked there, I, I really do believe, I mean, even being in the midst of it, that I think our legal system is one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world. Uh, yet, but, but our legal system, our justice system, is still not exempt from corruption and from bias and prejudice and all those things. Like any place, human beings are involved in it, and it's here. When I worked in the jail, there was no question in my mind as I watched men and women going off to court and eventually getting sentenced, there was no question that things like race, income, nationality made a difference. They absolutely did. They did back then. They still do today. Uh, again, I think remarkable legal system in our country. But human beings are still in it. Corruption still exists. Prejudice still exists. And one of the other things they were told there, you can't even take the widow's cloak at all, which I thought was interesting. The widow who is so vulnerable, you can't even take hers during the day. You know, you've got to give her a loan. Just give her a loan. Move on. Because what does she have actually to give you? Because widows in that culture were probably the most vulnerable people in that entire culture. And that is still true in many parts of the world today. Do some research on widows around the world. It is heartbreaking to see what many widows around the world have to deal with. Many countries, they are treated as if they are cursed. The reason their husband died was because of them. That's why they're in this situation, and so they deserve to suffer. They must do penance the rest of their life because somehow they're cursed that caused their husband to die. Many times, families, even when they have money, will send their mothers off because they're widows because they don't want them cursing the rest of the family. Uh, widows treated horribly, abused horribly in many parts of the world. Still true. 
um, simply because they're vulnerable and they lack power. Finally, lack of opportunity. So again, passage you heard earlier, the passage read where it's telling those who are landowners, when you harvest your crops, whether you're harvesting grapes or olives or the grain, as you pass through, pass through once, and what you miss, leave behind. And leave it behind so that those who are the foreigners and the widows and the orphans can come and they can glean what's been left behind. So it was their system to come in and be able to get the leftovers and be able to feed themselves and feed their family and care for them because they didn't own land. They didn't have the opportunity to do that. Uh, I have heard this passage several times, I must admit. This passage or passages like in the scripture to argue against things like welfare and things like that. And the point being made a lot of times is, see, God set up a system where they had to work. They had, they had to go and work. They had to glean the product. They had to pick it up and carry it. It wasn't just handed to them, so they had to work. The only thing I would say about that is um, there's a whole lot of charity involved in this. You know, they didn't own the land. They didn't plant the seeds. They didn't plow. They didn't do anything other than when it was all done and ready and it was left there for them. It didn't belong to them, belonged to the landowner, but he left it there for them so that they could have it. They did participate, but I think this passage, like many others like it in Scripture, the whole focus of this passage is not about protecting the landowner. The focus here is about caring for the poor. And so I even think letting them glean, letting them participate in the ways they could in providing for themselves and their family is showing them respect. It's treating them with dignity. I don't think it's about, we need to make sure you work. I think it's probably more about, we want you to be part of this any way you can be part of it. We want you to participate and feel like a part of it any way you possibly can. So you get to come and glean. You get to pick up. Matter of fact, in the chapter just before, in chapter 23, they're told there that, you know, you can go into your neighbor's field and you can take a handful of grapes or you can take some grain before the harvest and you can eat it. But there, there is a little protection for the landowner. Because you can't take in a basket, you can't take in a sickle. So you can't go in and get stuff to take home. But if you're hungry, if you're in need, you can walk into their field and Take enough to eat right then to satisfy your need. Because as a culture, they were told, care for one another. Care for those that have less. Make sure that they're taken care of. Uh, if you have more, make sure those with less are taken care of. So as I've gone through this, I've left some things out of each passage that I've read. If you've been following me along, there's little sections of each of the passages I've looked at that I've left out. Um, and that's because I think there's, in some ways, the most interesting parts of the passage. I really want to focus on them for a minute. Um, each of those are kind of the, the why you should do this. Here's what you should do. Here's the law. Now here's the why. Here's the motivation to, to go ahead and do it. So, for instance, in verse 13, where it says, don't enter their house and don't keep their cloak overnight, it says this, then they will thank you, and it will be, re be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord our God. Why should you do this? Because they'll thank you. Because they will show gratitude to you. Uh, it's a good reminder, I think, sometimes. You know, we have these, this, these resources, sometimes beyond what we absolutely need. Uh, we have resources that we could be generous with. What could you do with it that would be more meaningful to you than help somebody else who truly needs it? I mean, not, not even just for them, but for you. If you really stop and think about it, what could you do that in the end would be more meaningful with that money than invest in the life of somebody else that you truly could lift them up and they would be grateful in the end? We all kind of know that's true, right? 
that in the end, that matters to me more than some extra junk I can buy or extra stuff I can do. But in the moment, we lose sight of that. And he says to them, do this, because they will thank you, because you will be a part of improving their life. But secondly, he says, do this, because this is righteousness before God. This is the righteous thing to do. This is the right thing to do. It's not just above and beyond. It's not just your kind of, you know, here's what you should do. Here's a nice thing to do. No, actually what God is saying, this is the law. This is what you are required to do. Righteousness requires this of you, to be someone who cares for those in need around you when you have the ability to do so. As a nation, it's the nation they were to be. Verse 15, look there. This following the command to pay the day labor at the end of each day. It says, otherwise they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. In this case, he says, no, this is just plain robbery. You're stealing from them if you don't pay them at the end of the day. This is sin. This is absolutely sin. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man shows contempt for their maker. Hear that? Whoever oppresses a poor man shows contempt for their maker. And he who is kind to the needy honors God. I think what he's saying here is, this is about relationship to me, not just to them. God is their maker. God is their creator. He has created them in his image. He watches over them, cares for them, longs for a relationship with them. They matter to him. When you care for them, you are honoring your God because he cares for them. In this church, one of the things I've said before is one of the blessings we've had of being here for 25 years is you know, our kids grew up here, and now we have a grandson who's attending here now. Uh, so we've seen our kids and even grandkids benefit from people in this church. He cared for well by them over the years. Loved them in difficult situations many, many times. I tell you, we've had a lot of people do for us, care for us well. There is nothing you've done for me that's more meaningful to me that I'm more grateful for than when you've cared for my kids. When you've loved those who I love, it is the greatest gift you can give me. I love when you do for me, but man, I love when you've done for the ones I love. Nothing means more than that to me. I think that's what our God is saying. Love the ones who I love who are in a difficult situation. Um, he, says, he says in another passage that when they cry out to me, another passage where he's talking about keeping the cloak overnight, he says when they cry out to me, I will hear their complaint. I will have compassion on them. A little stronger way of saying it's like, I'm watching, I hear them, they matter to me. So don't think you got away with something. I've noticed that you didn't care well for somebody that's mine. We need to do that. Then finally, in verses 18 and 22, you actually hear the same phrase repeated twice. And in verses 18 and 22, um, it's the situation where, again, they're, you know, provide the food in their fields that they can glean, that people in need could glean. They're to make sure the courts are just for those that are in need. And then this phrase twice as kind of an explanation why they're to do this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright wrote that when Israel forgot its history, it forgot its poor. When they forgot who they were and where they came from, then's when they started forgetting their poor. Because if they remembered who they were and where they came from, it had been difficult to forget the poor. Because they were once the ones who were exploited and oppressed in Egypt. 
they were the ones who were living in poverty, were living under unfair practices, were being treated unjustly in another land. And God rescued them from that situation and brought them to the promised land where they now live. You know, it'd be easy for them, just like for us, to say, yeah, I remember my history. I remember we were in this horrible situation and we took great risk. You know, we took great risk in the face of Pharaoh and his huge army and we packed up and we left. We packed up all our stuff and we made that incredibly difficult track across the desert and we lived in the desert for years. And finally, our ancestors made their way into this promised land and they fought these incredible battles and defeated enemies. And that's why we are here today, because of all of those things. And they're true. They did do difficult things. They did suffer. They did struggle. They did pay a high price for the things that they now had. But that's not the whole story, right? Because the rest of the story is God raised up Moses and sent Moses to deliver them. And then Moses led them out of Egypt and God parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land and then God closed in the Red Sea upon their pursuers. And in the desert, God provided water. God provided manna to feed them and cared for them and kept them alive. And then when they did go into the promised land eventually, God provided their children with victories again and again over their enemies that they never would have had on their own. And that God is the one who actually owns the land, and God is the one who is the creator of every animal and every plant they depend upon. God's their creator. The rest of the story is, you have benefited much from the graciousness of another. Much. You've been cared for well. You didn't earn everything you have. Much has been given to you. Much. You lose track of that, you forget that others have needs that you could meet. We do the same thing, don't we? I mean, I do. I get lost. I am a, I'm a guy who's, you know, was raised, work hard, do the responsible thing, watch your money, do these things. And there's a part of me that gets easily caught up in, I, I have what I have because I've earned it. I tell you stories of how hard I worked and, you know, I've earned it. And I have what I have because I've been wise with what I've been given. I have what I have because of me. That's why I have what I have. And how easy it is to forget. I've also been given much. I was raised in a family, honestly, that provided much for me and loved me well and cared for me well. I've been raised in a country that's given me opportunities to do things that many around the world just never have. Uh, education, I never thought about not being able to get an education. They've had to work for it, but it was always possible. I've never thought raising my children that if some medical problem was really there that they couldn't be cared for. I never worried about getting up in the morning and having food or water. There'd be some way I could find it. There's so many things that I've been given that I've started the race at the halfway point, you know, because of all those opportunities. As a matter of fact, most of us in this room, if we really stop and look at it, most of us somewhere in our past, if we look through our history of ancestors, most of us somewhere in our past, we have people who came from other places, from very difficult situations at the time, and made their way in difficult ways to another place where they found a place that gave them more opportunity. And through hard work and through sacrifice and through those opportunities, they created opportunities for their children and their children's children. We have gleaned from the work of others. We have gone into their fields and gleaned the rewards of their work. We've all done that, right? We have benefited. We have been given graciously by others and by our God. And if we remember those things, 
if we remember our history, I think we are more likely to be gracious and generous towards those who are suffering around us. So application, I'm going to be quick because I'm out of time. And honestly, application, I, I don't know. Think about it. Research a little. Think of ways that you can actually contribute to the needs of the poor. Not ways you can get out of it. There's thousands of ways to get out of it, right? We can always find a reason that, that what we do won't matter. There's always a way out of it. Find a way to get into it. To step into caring for those in material need or impression. How can you help? Uh, one thing is, I talked about microloans. Honestly, I think there's some real positive things still happening with microloans. Uh, you can go to organizations like Charity Navigator on the web. So many of you have heard of that. On the web, you go find Charity Navigator. You can look up hundreds and hundreds of charities and get information all about them. You can find their websites. Then you can look directly at the charities and find out what they're doing, get information about how they spend their money, what kind of work they do. Uh, one of those organizations I love that does uh, work with microfinance is Hope International. I think a good organization, Christian organization, doing good work around the world. Um, one of the things you can do is support some of our own missionaries, missionaries and what they're doing. I think we think hard about our missionaries and, and who we support and what kind of work they do. And we have several missionaries that we support that I think are doing good work to fight some of those same issues that the nation of Israel was dealing with. There are people who are trying to make sure people can have fair employment. So we have people like the Bawados and the Mensas and the Ottenhoffs and the Weeks who are involved in their countries trying to help people get training and create opportunities for them so they can get good jobs to be able to provide for their families. Um, look at supporting our missions program as you'd be encouraged to do. We partner in this community with organizations that we think try to, um, try to involve people in their own self-improvement that don't just do for them, but involve them in it. Not again because we're worried about them being lazy, but involve them in it because that's what they want. Because that's to treat them as people that have resources and something to offer to themselves. So we, we work with groups like Habitat next weekend doing a Habitat build. And if you haven't given to that, you can give some money to that. We still need to raise some. So Habitat, every, you know, about every year, we've helped build a house in this community and sponsored a house. We work with places like Hannah House that does all kinds of training with young moms to prepare them to go out and raise their families. Um, we work with Mother Hubbard's Cupboard that, again, involves people in not only just giving them food, but raising their own food and teaching them how to cook their food and lots of things to be a part of it, not just hand to them. Because, again, I think it treats them as people have something to offer, because they do. One of the things you can do uh, is you can provide opportunities. You can provide opportunities through your finances, through your talents and skills. Again, next week, I'll see a lot of you with more talents in construction than me using your skills to help somebody else. Lots of ways that various of you can do that in different places. Um, you can also use your positions of influence. Uh, a lot of us just have networks and relationships that others don't have. I can't tell you how many times as deacons here at the church where we have connected people with someone who can help them. We have made those connections for them so they can get the help they need to help themselves. Uh, a lot of you have those kind of connections, and you can, when you see need, help people by putting some of those to use. Final thing I'll say is we can just pray. We can honestly, truly invest ourselves in prayer. We can't do everything. We can't change everything. Um, but we can pray. We can pray for those who are exploited people groups. We can pray for government officials and decision makers here and around the world. We can pray for corporations and business leaders. And we can pray that God would change our own hearts. 
that he would give us eyes to see the people around us the way he sees them. Why? Because in doing for the least of these, we do for our generous and compassionate and loving God. Let's pray. Father, most of us here are probably not struggling financially. Uh, Most of us here probably are not really struggling under heavy oppression of some kind from outside forces. But Father, at times we do know what it is to be people who are in desperate and in great need. Maybe we're in great need spiritually, maybe emotionally, maybe, Father, relationally, but we know need. Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to see that our needs may be different, but, Father, you, you designed us to lean on and depend upon one another. It's the way you made us. Father, I pray we'd understand that we all need each other, that we are, we are better when we see one another as you see each other, and, Father, we step into each other's lives. Father, I also pray that you would help us to realize uh, how deeply we need you, how deeply we are like everyone else, and that we need you more than anything else. So, Father, I pray we'd not only help, but that we'd help in your name, that we would help in a way that reveals to others Uh, that we are different because we've been loved by you. In your blessed name, amen.